<laughs> here come the pieces, Dad. You know. Uh, well, well, here it is, friends. Once again, we're faced with the necessity of looking that blank face of reality right smack in the blank face of reality's blank face of reality's eye. Right. <laughs> Well, that's like uh, I'm, I'm saying that you've got to look at the way it is once in a while. And, and since you have to look at the way it is, you better look. You know, speaking of uh, looking at the way it is, uh, I've always felt for a long time that the only real difference between us and the Europeans is that the Europeans have lived through so much hogwash in their time. Uh, you know, they have about 10 million years of history behind them, and our, our history really doesn't go back... Uh, much beyond, oh, you know, 1620, maybe, at the very outside. Uh, and that's that's greasy kid stuff to a real European. I, I've been in European cities where they kept referring to the new town. They say, well, of course, you're going over to new town. That's the new subdivision. And it turns out the new subdivision was built in the latter days of the Second Children's Crusade. And uh, literally, they do do this. And, and in fact, there is in Zurich... Uh, they, they always refer to the new city and the old city. And if you go to the old city, of course, that's the old city. I mean, that's really the old city. They have streets made of old skulls of Neanderthal man. I mean, it's that old. I mean, really old city. The new city uh, was completed about the time uh, that Richard the Lionhearted was bagging his first rabbit. Uh, he was not yet quite in the lion class. And, and that's considered the new city. Well, I, yeah, this is, of course, a completely different concept from America. I mean, here here in, in New York City, a building uh, that, that, is, uh, that is still standing and was built in 1949 is considered one of the neighborhood relics. Uh, and they point it out. They really do. They say, well, I like an old building. And you'll say, well, what do you mean an old building? You know, this is, I, I was living in a building here a couple of years ago that was finished in 1951. And everybody in the elevator would congratulate themselves every couple of days. They'd say, you know, it sure is great to live in an old building. You know, I was visiting a friend of mine the other day. And he's in one of these new places, you know, built out of Reynolds wrap. And you can hear the Johns flushing up and down from all, all the four floors away. You hear arguments uh, over in the next wing of the building, which is across the street. I don't know, they must have some kind of few other things. And we'd congratulate each other. We'd say, isn't it great to live in an old building? Uh, 1951. Well, that old building is now a hole in the ground. Uh, that old building finally was done away with, and they're building another building, which in a couple of years will be an old building, and they'll do away with that. Well, now, this is the concept of America. Literally, actually is. And and, and our, our sense of reality, of course, is is limited. It, it has to be limited when you live in a world that blows away. Uh, if, have, you ever, have you ever spent any time on a set, an actual set? I'm talking about on a stage set. Well, after a while, <laughs> it's funny, I, I did a play here a couple of years ago where, where the, the, the whole set, the set itself, uh, was, it was a one-set play. And the set was my apartment. The guy that I was playing lived in this pad. This was his apartment, you see. And, and uh, it had a kitchen over here to one side, and over here was where the phone was and the desk, and there was where the bed folded out of the wall. You, you can imagine all the funny business that went on with the bed that folded out of the wall. You can just see what uh, limitless possibilities for a really good comic writer to really let himself go. You know, a good one like Max Schulman, one of the deep comic writers. He's very, oh, what a turkey. Well, well nevertheless... Uh, uh, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. And 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 here was this set. This set was this set was a was a was a was the pad. Now I would come to to uh, rehearse, 
about three or four days before the play actually opened. We were rehearsing on the set itself. And all day long, I would be on this, this set uh, in my pad. And after about three days of this, it became almost, in a way, more real than my real pad pad. For one thing, uh, whenever it all got messed up, I would walk away. <laughs> And the stagehands would come and straighten it all up. You know, they didn't. Uh, I didn't have to uh, do anything about it. And then somehow this was better. I, I kind of liked it better. And and everything, everything was uh, was nailed down. That's another thing I like about a stage set kind of pad. It's nailed down, and you have a total sense of irresponsibility when you're living on a in a stage set. Well, literally, you do. You, for example, uh, you can be ha wrestling with a guy in the second act. It was a big scene where I'm wrestling with this guy. See? Well, you kick the lamp over, and you the lamp goes boom all over the floor, and you know that tomorrow morning the stage department, the set department, will have another lamp. You know that you're not going to spare the pieces and so on. And so I began to like my stage set. To boil it down, I began to dig living there. And uh, I'd come up there uh, before the show. Uh, we'd, the, the curtain would be at 8.40. And about 7 o'clock, uh, the, the curtain's down, you see, and it's, it's dark. And I'd go in my little pad. I'd walk around in my pad. <laughs> you never thought of, of actors doing that, did you? Oh, sure. You'd be surprised at how much Hamlet begins to love having that castle. Uh, Hamlet certainly, no matter who plays Hamlet, one of the reasons everybody wants to play Hamlet, I mean, he's a prince, you know. That's not an insurance salesman. You got a castle, and you're heroic, and, and it's just wild, and it's a great scene. And, and so, after a while, it, it's not uncommon before the curtain goes up on Hamlet to see the prince, whoever is playing the prince, stalking the ramparts. Uh, he's literally in the darkness. Up there. He loves being there. He likes that being there, and everybody is kind of nice to him because he's a prince, after all, you know. And 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 so I would come in. Uh, I would, oh yeah, you know, he's not, he's not little Jaime Epstein that comes from the Bronx any longer. He's the Prince of Denmark. And, uh, that's a big difference. Let me tell you that. It's not Fordham Road there, Elsinore Castle. And I, uh, I, I got so I kind of liked this pad. And I'd come in there and I'd walk around the darkness and I'd plunk down on that cardboard settee they had. And, uh, kind of like that too. And, and, uh, I, 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 it was my place, you see. And then came, of course, the inevitable day when the, the set was what they call struck. Well, now, now I'll have to tell you, uh, there's, there's another odd thing about that, too, that, that uh, has uh, not been discussed too often in the sense of striking a set. Uh, at first, there is a sense of regret. And then there's, following that, a sense of relief. Because you are relieved of your responsibility of even being on the set. Because I think man's total drive all throughout all of history has been to get out of responsibility. To get away from it all. Oh, what, what do you call progress? You, everything that we have made has been to make it so that we don't have to walk. Uh, so that we don't uh, breathe the air. We have machines now that process the air. We have, we have machines that think of uh, things for us. Millions and millions of machines now that do all the work. And, and, and in fact... Uh, did you read in the paper the other day one of the scary little things in the paper uh, uh, back in the uh, the department in the Times where they have inventions and and they have uh, yeah, have you ever seen that department back this one in the ad department uh, it has little inventions and things and there was a a little piece there about a jurist somewhere some insane nut uh, someplace a jurist uh, a legal light and he was saying that he feels that eventually 
the courts will have computers to decide the merits of one case or the other. How do you like that scene? Hey, did you read about that? Oh, yes. He says, he says that he feels that since we have, uh, we've, uh, we've done so much with uh, these great machines that we've uh, uh, so almost uh, perfected them. I don't know what perfecting the machine means. Does perfecting the machine mean that the machine will be more like us than us? Is the perfect machine a man? It's a good question, you know. When you say perfect the computer, we always talk about perfect it. Well, what do you mean by perfect it? Does that mean it's more like us than we are? Uh, like most characters that are in novels and in plays are far more human than people are in real life. They cry more. They're more involved with each other than in real life. Have you noticed that in plays and in books and in dramas, one thing or another? Uh, oh, sure. Most people just don't say the things to each other that they say in books. Uh, they don't relate to each other in the same way. Now, that's going to sound... Uh, I'm sorry, they just don't. Uh, in short, the writer's duty, then, is to perfect the man. Let's say even make him more vulnerable than he is in real life. That's called perfectibility in the art sense. In short, if, you're, if the character, let's say Holden Caulfield, is far more sensitive than any 16-year-old guy ever is, uh, which makes him a more perfect 16-year-older. He is a creation of a man's mind. Now, do we define the perfect machine as the machine that is more human-like? In short, it worries. The eventual machine will have to worry. It'll have to have fears. Uh, probably the more, the more perfect the machine, the more the machine will also have desires of its own and also ambitions. And eventually, the most perfect machine of all will be the machine that will be aware of the danger from mankind itself. He will say, mankind is plotting to take over. Either that or they are holding us down. Oh, yes, mankind is discriminating completely against machines. You know that, of course. Why, uh, let's face it, isn't, it is not, it's certainly not allowing, uh, uh, would you want your uh, daughter to marry one? Okay. Yes, somebody will answer, yes. <laughs> Eventually they will. And so, so the, the, the problem is, is quite complex, this business of what is a perfect machine. Uh, and so, so here we sit, uh, uh, waiting for it to happen, and we're working our way towards it. Now, I suspect that, that our whole drive, ever since the very beginning of time, has been to elude or somehow evade or at least smooth over responsibility of one kind or another. That's called progress. That if we could get the world to run by itself and have a gigantic key coming out somewhere near Greenland, a big key that would be wound up every couple of years by some cosmic force. The whole world would run as a machine itself. Man then could forever live in a playpen, forever have whoopsie fun and, and run around and, and blow up little balloons and, and uh, dance dances and play guitars all the time. And, and the world runs itself. Uh, this has been an old, old dream of mankind, and I suspect uh, we're, we're continuing and will always pursue it. Now, now the, the idea of evading responsibility, which could be called progress, 
is, is not new, and certainly it's not only part of what we call the civilized world. Did you Have you been reading about the President Johnson cult that's been growing like mad out in, uh, in uh, Port Moresby? I have, well, all right, now I have a, a later bulletin on it. A couple of weeks ago on the show, we talked about uh, this, this cult in Port Moresby of natives who, who uh, <laughs> somewhere along the line, had, had, uh, had evolved a, a whole cult. It was a religious cult based on President Johnson. That President Johnson was trying to send them all the good things in life, but the Australians were stealing it. And, oh, yeah, they were having a devil of a time with them. Now, here is the latest report. This came in the 1st of September, Port Moresby, New Guinea, Reuters, and that's very official. Officials are building a special jail on New Hanover Island in the Trust Territory of New Guinea to contain the growing number of President Johnson cultists. Since June, administration officers aided by armed police have been steadily arresting islanders who refuse to pay their taxes. Instead, they want to use the money to buy President Johnson. They want to buy Johnson now as a ruler for their tiny island. <laughs> oh, the search for Superman goes on. I'm sorry. It'll go on. It'll always go on as long as there are men walking around on two feet. We are always and will continually look for a Savior who will clear up all the problems. I don't care whether he's running for president or whether he's running for dictator or running for, for a chief uh, Saracen holder of our lodge. Uh, whatever it is, he's going to finally get us on the uh, straight and narrow. And Oh, by the way, one of the great favorite phrases of all, of all people who are searching for Superman, and he will finally steer us into the placid, peaceful waters of eternal peace. Uh, steer us into peaceful waters. All right. The cult started during the territory's first general election last February, when about 2,000 of the island's 7,000 population refused to vote for the official candidates and attempted to write in President Johnson's name. <laughs> when they were prevented from doing so, they merely withheld their taxes. The Native Affairs Director said 81 New Hanover natives were now in jail. Only the ringleaders, he said, we have, but it's growing by leaps and bounds. Well, they want to buy Johnson. How do you like that scene? Now, now, is that any different, though? It's, it's, it's very ridiculous to us. But these people really believe they need this Superman. They think Johnson is, you see. And if he came there, life would be forever beautiful on New Hanover. <laughs> I don't know anything about what life is like on New Hanover without Johnson. But nevertheless, they believe that it would all clear up. Now, I'm using all in the capitalized sense. Now, millions of guys walking around in the streets of New York believe that somehow if they could get to a tiny island somewhere, all of it would not be there. That it's only here that all of it is. I'm using it in its capitalized sense again. That if I could get to New Hanover, it would all be back here in New York or Cleveland or Paris or Rome or wherever it is that you happen to got the bug. Wherever the bug bit you, that it was all after you. <laughs> and I think that, that this is a, this is a, this is a, an old mankind thing too, that all, all of it is after me. All of it. What is all of it? Well, I suppose life itself. Uh, whatever life is. Uh, 
as George Age said, life consists of a series of, of, uh, of resolutions and relapses. It, <laughs> it consists of a series of, 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 of almost making it and then falling back two more. Speaking of, of almost making it and then falling on it, you know, this is WOR AM at FM New York, and uh, we'll be here for a while. And, and uh, here, here we've got this problem. Now, now I, I suspect, however, that the Britishers, uh, because they are now in a long decline, certainly, uh, since the mid-19th century, the, the British Empire has, uh, even the most dedicated Britisher living out on the furthest island in the western approaches to the Great Sea, has to finally now concede that England is not the England that it was in the great days of the empire in, in 1860 or 1850 or 1810, uh, that they're beginning to be more and more just like a little island, that's all. <laughs> that's it, you know. <laughs> and, and so they know it. Well, what does this produce? Well, it's produced a very peculiar quality of realism in them. Uh, it's, it's just like a man. It's, it's like, it's like a, a man who at one point was a giant Olympic runner, uh, who could hurl the discus and who could throw the javelin four miles and who could run a, a, a three-minute mile on it. And finally, he's 74 years old and he's got a bad knee. He begins, either he becomes a complete unrealist, uh, either he becomes a, a real nut that lives in the past. There's only two ways to go. Or else he becomes even more of a realist than those who have never been great Olympic runners. Uh, this is a fact. Uh, I've, I've known many guys who were great stars, who were tremendous stars in their day. Uh, and now they are not. They're living in Horn and Hard Arts over here on Broadway. Now, there's only two ways a man goes. I've noticed this. Either the man becomes a, a, a real fantasist, and he sits there and thinks that any minute now his agent's going to call. And uh, any minute now Godot's going to arrive, and all those people out there on the street, they'll, you know, he's still a great star. And uh, he's living in the past, and all you have to do is, is mention uh, 1926, comes his wallet, and five yellowed, withered clippings fall out. And he says, well, yes, let me show. And, and the next thing you know, you get the whole story of Zegfield's Follies all over again. You know? <laughs> now, there's that kind of guy. He's a, he, there's a sad one. Or is he sad? I don't know. Uh, it's hard to say. You know, you're not 74 years old and has been, so it's difficult for you to say he's sad. I'm not so sure. Many guys don't even have a past to live in. Now that could be even sadder. Uh, oh yeah, many guys, many guys have never have never really had anything ever happen to them all of their lives, and so finally one day they depart the mortal coil, and somebody says, "Well, one thing about Charlie, he never lived in his past. What past? You know, <laughs> he has no past to live in." <laughs> now that can be pretty sad, I'll tell you that. Then there's the other kind of guy. This is a rarer type. This is the guy who, at the age of 74, has seen it all. He's been this great star. Uh, and and he, he now knows something about mankind and about life, really. Not mankind, but just life itself, the process. He knows something about this process. That lesser men are never allowed to really quite glimpse. They suspect it, but they don't quite glimpse it. Uh, they don't quite feel it. And so, but he has, you see, he's been carried on the shoulders of the multitude. He has been cheered. Uh, he has read his name countless times in the newspapers. Uh, he has this great horde of followers. One thing or another, now it's all over. Now, what has he learned? Well, he's learned something that most people uh, never get a chance to learn because most people never have that uh, kind of thing happen to them.
Very few people have followers. Very few. They have friends. That's not quite the same as having followers. Uh, and even uh, probably the most subtle thing of all is to have followers you don't even know. I mean, you know, people that you don't, you'll never meet, and yet they're followers. Now, uh, what does this do to a man? Makes him, makes him <laughs> understand a lot of things that uh, about life and about man that will never be the part of the guy who never, never crosses path. Only uh, perhaps intellectually, and even then, uh, you'll never know it. And so here is this old duffer, and I've known several of them, and these uh, these guys have a look in the eye. And uh, they're, they're vaguely amused by things which other people are in dead serious about. Really dead serious. Uh, does it really matter if you, if you get the novel done? Well, here he is. He's 74. He got it done. He's still 74. <laughs> Nothing, uh, you know. Uh, his knee hurts. And he has intimations of a lot of things. And he sits there and he looks at other guys sitting at the next table. And I'll tell you this. You see in the second chapter. And they're all deeply involved. Now he, he looks over there and he's, he, a, a, a slight flicker of amusement plays over his lips. And it, it, is the, it is the slight flicker that says, well, play the game now. Or let them play it hard. But I hope they understand it's a game. I hope they understand... That it is a G-A-M-E. And the moment, the moment the man ceases to do that and thinks somehow that his life and whatever it is he's doing is not a game, oh boy, look out. Uh, and then you've got problems. Then, 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 then you have the screamers and the, the, the knife fights in the dark and the, the, the demands to burn down City Hall and all the rest of it. And then you also have people growing out of that, uh, that peculiar condition looking for the man who will lead them into the green pastures, who will make it all work out the way they want it to work out. Now, what, what, what has this done to the British? Well, it's done a lot of very wild things. Uh, here, for example, a little note from uh, London here. I just, uh, just came in today, UPI, <laughs> or London. Tony Gold, a clothing salesman in London, said recently he would offer 10% discounts to neurotics. Well... Uh, <laughs> don't laugh. He's not being funny. Uh, we have we have we have clothing stores here for every type of problem here in New York City. Now he doesn't say what kind of neurotics. He doesn't say. I have a suspicion. Uh, I, I literally do. I <laughs> I have a suspicion. He doesn't say it. He doesn't come out. But. But uh, I, I repeat, it says, Tony Gold, a clothing salesman, said recently he would offer 10% discounts to neurotics. If, uh, if I think they're genuine cases, they get a discount, Mr. Tony said. Well, now, now that is, uh, I don't know whether you've been in some of these places up and down Greenwich, up and down Lexington Avenue, but no one will admit it here in America. You see, that's the difference. I'm trying to say to you that, that, that England doesn't fool around anymore. They'll put a sign out in the window. It'll say a 10% discount to you-know-whats. And uh, you come in with your pink sweater and your hair done up in curlers, and you're in business, fellas, and that's all there is to it. And you get the discount. You've got to prove, though, that you are. Now, they, no phonies are allowed, you know. <laughs> now, now uh, only, only in, in a country that has been beset by an onslaught of reality <laughs> could this happen. I mean, literally, could they, could they put the sign out there? 
Now, uh, this, uh, this sneaky kind of reality, though, uh, pops up on all sides. Now, here, for example, somebody sent me a note from Roanoke. Now, I don't know whether you know anything about Roanoke, but he sent me a, a clipping taken right out of the amusement page of a Roanoke paper. It's the Roanoke Times. I'd read to you. And uh, it's from the amusement page. Remember that. And it's got these big garish ads. You know the ads that we've got in our amusement page for, for nightclub acts and one thing or another. Here's a, here's a big thing. It shows this chick looking out. She's dressed like an Egyptian uh, something, uh, you know, the, with the long hair and the, the things hanging down. And she's holding a candle aloft. That's a wild looking thing. It's a Sammy's. 1641 Ninth Street SE presents the most exotic dancer that ever hit Roanoke. And she's looking out. And you can see she's exotic. And it says, Miss La Savona, direct from the best clubs in New York City. Shows 10 and 12, plus the fabulous Romans, featuring the voice himself. And underneath it, it says, salesman welcome. Ladies free. Now, I kind of like that place, you see. All right, now. Now, wait a minute. You haven't heard the rest. And underneath it is a giant ad for a movie that simply is entitled, A House is Not a Home, from... The dynamic producers of the Carpetbaggers starts Wednesday. All right, now, you've heard the two ads. They're one after the other. One is on top of the other. But right in between the two is a single line, just a single line of bold type, and it says, Read, Heed, Billy Graham. Now, now, I don't know whether Billy Graham's crowd bought that ad there in between Sammy and the Fabulous Romans with Miss Lessa and A House is Not a Home, or whether it was just put in there as a public service by the guys who operate the Roanoke Times, or whether some wise guy in the, in the linotype department just thought he'd throw a hooker in there in the middle of all of them. <laughs> now, see, I mean, there it is. It's, it's popping up everywhere. Uh, a, few, a few years back, that would not have occurred. I submit. It would not. A few years ago, uh, the juxtaposition of those two things would not have happened in any newspaper. Why? I don't know. A few years ago, a guy in England would not have put up a sign that says 10% uh, discount to neurotics. That's one way to put it. Uh, he would not have done that. Now, what kind of neurotics does he say? Oh, everybody's saying, well, no, he doesn't mean that kind. Well, what do you think he's talking about? Paranoics? Is he going to give a discount to schizoids to come in there? Uh, which type of neurotic is he interested in? Kleptomaniacs? I doubt it. <laughs> That's, uh, you know, is he, is he, uh, I don't know. Uh, is he just interested in nervous people? Well, uh, a nervous person is not necessarily a neurotic. You'd have a lot of trouble just say, well, I'm, I'm nervous. He'd say, well, I'm sorry. Got to, that's, uh, a lot of people are nervous. This. Uh, uh, what kind of a neurotic are you? Well, uh, uh, <clears throat> okay, give him the card, Fred. He gets the 10%. Now, now that is, uh, is a kind of reality, <laughs> which, uh, which I submit to you, is, is here. It's beginning to creep into the world. Uh, now, now, is this a European thing? I don't know. Uh, I'll tell you this. Uh, if, uh, here, here, here's another sort of a little thing. Here's a guy sent me a note here, a card here. This is from New York uh, Times. No, from September, Popular Science. Now, it's just a little one-line ad in the want ad section of Popular Science, but it says a great thing. 
It simply says, genius. Become a genius. High grades. Gigantic vocabulary. Only 49 cents. Box 6, SJ7, St. Louis Mall. <laughs> now, I submit that there's something about us. Uh, it, it, it may be just a little tiny thing uh, in the middle of... Under, oh, by the way, right underneath it is the thing that says, Improve your poor penmanship quickly. Uh, that's another ad for another outfit. That, uh, and so everywhere you have it, it's, it's beginning to pop out. Now, I, I, I uh, don't know whether any of you have ever taken a course in anything like this. Have any of you ever submitted yourself to a correspondence course? Well, when I, I, I have to tell you a story about when I'm a kid now. I'll just, just, it's got to come out. And uh, before we go any further, speaking of stories, I've been getting all kinds of letters from people who say, Shepard, the next time you have a, a piece appear in a magazine or something, let us know about it. Well, I have a piece in the current issue of of uh, Playboy. Uh, Playboy. And, uh, well, I think I'm a Playboy. What do you mean? I play around enough. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it's terrible. Everyone secretly has great dreams of what he is. And actually, all he is is a guy with a bad foot. Uh, however, I, <laughs> I, I, I have a piece in the current issue of Playboy. And uh, it's in September issue. And it's called Grover Dill and the Tasmanian Devil. And uh, I submit that there's a Tasmanian devil that lives next to the spleen of every one of us, perhaps right in the spleen of every one of us. Perhaps uh, you are the Tasmanian devil. But nevertheless, uh, I do have a piece in the current issue of Playboy, and I, and, I, and I say that the time has now come for us to inundate them. Uh, and, and, uh, and by George, even if you haven't read this piece, you write a letter to Playboy and just simply say, Shepherd Moore, Shepherd C, Herb Gold, no! <laughs> Say, uh, Salinger, no, Shepherd C. Uh, say, uh, Jean-Jacques Gabor, no, Shepherd C. Uh, Centerfold out, no, Shepherd C. <laughs> I'll tell you, I, 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 I have to repeat this, though. I, I'm, I constant, constantly get these great letters written in elegant handwriting, you know, the penmanship-type letters. There are people who used to take. Do they still teach penmanship in school? Or do they just teach printing? I suspect they just teach grabbing the pen and printing. Uh, this is all part of the pop art world. where you just, The whole point is to, is to print your name. And Oh, yeah, kids mostly print today. They don't write. Very little writing actually is done. It's more printing. Uh, but I, I can always tell the letters that people, of, of people who, have, who grew up in the Spencerian handwriting world. And you see this beautiful flowing handwriting. It comes out. And they invariably refer you to you by titles, one thing and another. Oh, yes. And then I get the kind that says, uh, Mr. Eugene Shepherd. Well, first of all, my name, baby, is not Eugene. Uh, it, is <laughs> it is not Eugene, but I constantly get this. Uh, I kind of like it, you know, kind of because Miss Shields, all through my second grade, called me Eugene. She refused to concede that there was a name J E A N. It is not feminine, it is masculine in France. And so I get this letter, and it says, Dear Mr. Eugene Shepherd, uh, I, I, the other afternoon, uh, the attention was called to me of an article which you had penned for what appears to be a popular, uh, a popular monthly. Uh, I, I didn't quite catch the name of the magazine. However, I had a friend of mine 
pick up a copy at our friendly neighborhood newsstand. I must say you write quite well. However, the magazine I found itself extremely amusing. I don't quite remember the name of it, and the next time you appear in that magazine, would you please remind me? There's certainly some very pretty young ladies in that magazine. Thank you, Miss uh, Amantha Christie. <laughs> I love to get this kind of letter. You know, everyone secretly does not want to admit. You don't want to admit that you know, this is stirring. But nevertheless, uh, I, I, uh, I, I, I can tell you this. That the, that the problem of reality is always with us. And the problem of the desire to, to, to transmute yourself from the lead that you are into gold is probably the most devilish of all the human urges. Uh, you know the old, the, old, uh, the old myth, the old idea of the old alchemists was to turn gold into, or rather turn lead into gold? Yeah, or it was a whole, a whole concept. Well, the reason this had, and, and still does hold, a tremendous urge for us to do, it, it's a great desire to do it, is because we relate it to ourselves. We like to believe that somehow we can create man. We can take the lead of mankind, us, just the whole race, it, the species, and, and transmute it into some golden creature, some golden, fantastic creature and you see this running through almost all of the science fiction. Uh, oh, there's, there's been thousands of, of, of science fiction stories about man going to another planet and creating the, the truly beautiful race. So all the beautiful people go there. Uh, oh, yes, and create a beautiful... Oh, yes, this is, this is a, a recurrent theme in, in the science fiction. Uh, oh, it's, it, it really does. If you've ever read any of it, you know that it pops up. Now, that we have another idea, too, which is the reverse of it. Uh, that is that somehow we have taken gold and made it into lead. Now, that's the reverse of the idea, that, that mankind started out gold, and somehow he has been able to transmute himself into lead. Now, they're both really uh, the same idea. And so running through one type of science fiction writer, you'll find that, that, that somewhere up on this other planet there are the beautiful creatures that will be contaminated by man. Man will come and louse it up and reduce these beautiful creatures to the lead that mankind is. Now, uh, this is another recurring thing, but, the, but, the, but they're both the same thing, see? And so, as a kid, I'll, I'll tell you, I was constantly, constantly assailed by these things. You know, kids are, are really uh, open to it more than adults because a kid is more conscious of his shortcomings. The adult, in many ways, has learned to live with them. You know, he's made all kinds of adjustments, rationalizations, one thing or another. But the kid can't figure out why he is a little skinny runt. Well, nobody will say to him, well, it's because, Fred, you've got bad genes, you know. Your, your, your family is, goes all the way back to the first caveman. They were little skinny runts. You, <laughs> that's the way it is. Yeah, so, yeah, that's right, bad genes. And, and that's the end of it. He's a little skinny nothing, and that's the end of it. Well, he sees an ad on the back that says, I was once a 97-pound weakling. And now, and it shows this gigantic man. He's cracking chains around his muscles. He's 17 feet tall. And then there's that little thing underneath it that shows, you know, the guy getting the sand kicked in his face on the beach. All right. How many little squirts right now with pimply faces got sand kicked into their face right on Jones Beach this past weekend? Ah, 
Uh, well, a lot of guys just don't go on the beach. They sit back there and, and now they give up. You see the adult, he gives up and he sits there and eats nothing but clam broth and watches the other guys get sand kicked in their face. That's the end of it. Well, now, now here, the kid, though, he rails against this. He says, why, why, why am I? So, so he, he, he is very tempted to send in that thing that says, in seven days, I can prove to you in just five minutes a day that you can become a giant among men that your muscles can bulge and ripple along your back, and that you will be a feared force, a tornado in your neighborhood. Well, the next thing you know, off it goes. All right, now, now there's that part. There, there's that thing. You see, that's that's the physical. Now, then, on the other hand, we have guys who sit around and their head is a solid cheesecake, you know, between the ears. And they can't figure out why they're a chowderhead. You know, they, they 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 see these other guys writing books. You know? They see these other guys got fancy answers to the questions. Uh, now, there's two ways you can rea you can react to that. You can either hit them, and so, you know that's one way. Just hit those guys. That's all. <laughs> or you can sit in the back row and plot, and and try to figure out why it is you got you know why you got cheesecake between the ears. Uh, now that uh, that's 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 a problem. So always there's a little ad for those guys. It'll say, "Do you want to be a genius?" Do you want to get great grades? Do you want to have a fantastic, insightful mind? Do you want to become a creative writer and write a gigantic bestseller about how tortured your soul is? Do you want to be... The next thing you know, there it is. It says, yes, I do. Please rush me at once. <laughs> you know that that uh, that, uh, <laughs> that great uh, coupon that always says, yes, I accept your challenge. Rush me at once in plain sealed wrapper. Your instructions, I am 21. And, and so on. Say, well, all right. Uh, now here you've got the problem. So at the age of about nine, I remember distinctly the 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 long afternoons that I spent uh, mulling this one over. And it, and it so happens that most of us are hung up on the very thing which uh, we don't really quite have. Big, hefty guys with muscles do not read Charles Atlas commercials. They just don't. They're just too busy kicking sand in guys' face. They're not. They're not going to be writing in stuff and you know reading magazines about how to have big bulging muscles. I mean, so it's not true. Well, well, I, I so you know, I, it's, it just so happened I didn't have that problem. I was not. I was not hung up. You know, I, I did. I did my share of sand kicking. I faced that. Now I, there it is. However, I did have another problem. I happened to go around with a bunch of kids, all of whom were about uh, four or five years older than I was. And almost all of them had a tremendous knowledge, at least I thought so at the time, of electronics. These guys were really sharp. And, you know, they were, one guy was, had his ham ticket and another guy was building a lot of test equipment. And, all that. and I was, you know, I'd sit back there in the, in the background and I'd pretend I'd make a one-tube radio, you see. And it took me six months to get it going. And I would always take it over to one of the other guy's houses, you see, and say, Well, I just uh, want to run a few tests, uh, Fred, on your bull lomist. And, of course, by the time I would leave the house, Fred would have gotten it going for me, you see, and I pretended I did it. Well, one day, out of the back pages of a magazine, there is a finger pointing right at me, and it says, you can accrue the knowledge of all the technical modern improvements that have recently been part of the fast-moving electronic world. You can reap great riches. You can become a top serviceman. You can become a top radio engineer. You can become a top experimenter in the growing field of electronics. Do you remember that guy pointing out of the magazines? And underneath it, it said J.E. Smith. 
Yes, sir. A man named J.E. Smith. And he had some kind of an institute somewhere. And it says, I will send you a lesson. And underneath it, it says, yes, rush me at once. Your free sample lesson that will enable me to realize and recognize immediately on how fast I can learn this great new unfolding field of electronics. And underneath it, of course, it said, there was the line that says, you must be 21. And <laughs> so on. So, so all Shemp sits down there one one dark night, I clip it out of out of uh, out of Hugo Gernsback shortwave craft or radio craft or one of these things, and J. E. Smith is looking right out at me, and he looks so so solid. Not easy that it says, learn all about superheterodynes, learn all about neutrodynes, learn all about test equipment, learn about how transmitters work. Yes, in just seven minutes a day, you can be earning like J. L. of Hattiesburg, Mississippi, up to four dollars a week in your spare time servicing the neighbors. Yes. I'd write this thing down, and, and, and there it says, yes, rush me at once. Your free lesson on the superhead. Rush it to me at once, and then in 30 days, I will make my... So I write this thing down, and I send it off in the dark of the moon. And a couple of weeks later, it started. I'll tell you, it was like a new door opening up to me. I'm watching the mailbox being very casual. Because, you know, a, a kid of nine does not tip off to his parents at home that he has just sent off something that's liable to cost the family six million dollars, you know, before it's over. The kid does not want to concede that either. You know, have you noticed Charles Atlas never tells you how much those bulging muscles are going to cost? He does not mention this. You see, and the kid never really quite, but he has an inkling. That's a great word, by the way, inkling. It is different from an idea. Inkling just means a little bell is going ding, 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 ding in the back. It means trouble, an inkling. So off goes the thing. Well, about two weeks later, I get a big, beautiful blue envelope. And, and on the outside, in big red letters, it says, It's here! Your future! It's here! Earn big money in radio! And I get this thing, and my old man sees it on the dining room table there with all the bills that he gets. You know, there it is. It's addressed to me. It's here, your future. And here I am, earning big money in radio. <laughs>